chapter of St. John. I might say that there's a lot of things I would rather do tonight than this, although it is a privilege. It's the easiest thing in the world to stay in the mainstream of things and float down the river with everybody else and not disturb anything that seems to be getting along fine. But truth is truth. We feel like we'd be doing an injustice to God if we didn't cover some areas, eh? Post tonight, if you want to write down the title of what all we're going to say, it would be answers to curious questions. We've had so many people that say, well, God will reveal to me. And God is revealing God, and he will reveal. But you have to realize that the Apostle Paul told all of his ministers to study, especially Timothy, but all of them, to study yourself, uh, study to show yourself approved unto God. There's every indication that the Apostle Paul studied more than the Holy Writ. That he went sometimes out of his way to acquaint himself with customs, ideas and opinions that surrounded every church he established in every town. One special incident, and there's others, but I don't want to take up valuable time with that, while Paul was in Athens. And while he was concerned about them, he said, For in him, talking about God, we live and move and have our being. And then he says, As certain of your own poets have said, we are his offsprings. So he quotes from some of the writings of the Greeks themselves in Athens, which was completely against God. So he had read some of their literature. In other words, it has always been an example of the Apostle Paul, and I want to quote that again, to look into circumstances, culture, and all of this, of the cities that he went and established a church in, and acquaint himself with some of the most vivid writers, that he might be able to speak truth, and also that he might be able to meet issues that come up that wasn't covered by the Holy Writ. And this he did by his searching out other things. Now, 1 Corinthians 1 and 10, just to quote that, simply asked that God's people all speak the same thing. It's always been his desire that wherever we're coming together, that there wouldn't be a spirit of division created where one is saying one thing and one and another. And most of us know one another and we're aware really of what one another might believe. So sometimes we feel free to speak. And many times in a service we're speaking and we're disagreeing. We can understand that, but individuals that come in that don't know can't understand that. And they go away with a spirit of confusion as to what do they really believe. I mean, they're just not together on anything. One says one thing and one says another, and they're supposed to be of the same religion, of the same church. It's always been the Apostle Paul desired that everybody speak the same thing. In other words, don't create confusion or division by saying things actually what he's saying different from what the leadership God has placed in your midst has said and laid before. I think that's good advice for for us all. You have a right to your own belief, but in the house of God and under the leadership of God, you have no right to create a division or confusion. I think you need to know this if you don't already. And I think this is basically one of the things probably that keeps God's church every place, not just here, 
from experiencing spiritual growth as it should as well as numerical growth. Now, before I go into this, I want you to be aware that I was raised completely different and cut my teeth on basically the same thing that a lot of you are going to rise up with. I want you to know there was questions in that that I did not understand. Things left vacant, and I went to minister after minister without getting a successful answer. So this brought me into study in depth. Now, we hear it time after time saying, well, you've got to follow God, don't follow a preacher, don't do this or don't do that. Now, you, I realize that you can't just follow everything that comes along. But a minister does have his place, and God does give him time that you don't have. Amen? and ways of getting into things that you don't have and access to things that you don't have in order to present you truth that you would never know without it. Now, there are some things by revelation. I can remember that my father, in speaking by revelation one time, took Timothy, and I can't figure out, I don't remember offhand which one it was, but when, he, when the Bible says, Great is the mystery of godliness. He spoke of Revelation one time, and he said that word has been mistranslated. That word is Godhead. Had no proof of that whatsoever, but something way down inside of his heart, and he can realize that the subject actually was the Godhead from the beginning, and from the end, so he spoke that. And then I had a chance to be someplace, had a chance to find some ancient manuscripts and things that we don't get a chance to look at all the time, Actually, from the ancient reading, from the first writing, actually it did say Godhead. I found that out by search. He found it out by revelation. Nevertheless, it was still truth. Now, from the time that I have been a Christian, or even before, I have heard the message, repentance, baptism in Jesus' name, and receiving the Holy Ghost, as the three-point plan of salvation. Now, I don't want you to do that a disjustice or an injustice. But it has been left to the fact that if you repent and if you receive the Holy Ghost and have not been baptized in Jesus' name, then consequently you're not saved. Also, it's been said that if you repent and you have been baptized in Jesus' name and you have not received the Holy Ghost, then by the same token you are not saved. Now, that's basically old-fashioned Pentecostal doctrine. And in the midst of this, they have a birth in baptism or a birth in water, where they simply stipulate that it is water that remits our sins and takes it away. I want to deal with that from where we get it from the basis of it, from St. John, the third chapter, I want to read it this way. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Or one translation says, 
He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Well, the kingdom of God is opened up, and some other scriptures have said the kingdom of God is peace, joy, and righteousness in the Holy Ghost. So actually it's just saying here that we can't see or know what is in the Holy Ghost except we have it. And except we receive it and accept it's in our heart, then we can see and know the kingdom of God. We can know peace, we can know joy, and we can know righteousness. We can see it, we can experience it. So Nicodemus, a ruler, asked a very babyfied question, but to him it was serious. When he said, Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter into the second time unto his mother's womb and be born? And this is the scripture. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water, and of the Spirit he cannot enter unto the kingdom of God. And from that scripture we get the idea that there is a water birth. That some way or somehow, without baptism in Jesus' name, our sins are still not remitted. But Jesus goes on and explains what he's talking about in the sixth verse. As he said, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That's the only water birth there ever is, is being born of flesh. And then he says, that which is born of spirit is spirit. And then I want you to notice that he dropped all references to the fleshly birth. He zeroed in upon the important thing, and that was the birth of the spirit. Never mentioned being born of the flesh anymore, never mentioned water anymore, for he fully realized that everybody understood that man, in order to be born again, had to be born the first time. And so he completely leaves that scripture after explaining what he meant. And then he says, Marvel not that I say unto you, you must be born again. And then he begins to expound on the Holy Ghost, the power and presence of God, that which comes in and gives us our life. I'm going to quote again, I believe that there is no such thing as birth of baptism that baptism has nothing to do whatsoever with the remission or forgiveness of our sins. I want to take you to some scriptures and prove that. Acts 10, 28 says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost had made you overseers to feed the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. I want you to notice also in Ephesians 1, 7, you mark them all down. I would like to say this, when I am finished, and you want to talk to me on some of these and you have some questions, I'll be willing to meet with you individually and talk to you about any question you might have. And I would ask, there is something that you don't understand that you are against, that you would talk to me about it, and not everybody else, all right? Ephesians 1, 7 says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. I might interest you to know and why they do it, I don't know. But remission and forgiveness is synonymous. 
They came from the same Greek word ephemi, which means the same thing. So you see, there is no difference between remission of sins and forgiveness of sins. And the Bible clearly says, Scripture after Scripture, time after time, it completely repeats that the only thing that can forgive us of our sins is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing else is important as far as forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1, 4 says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness, or ephemi, the remission of sins. Hebrews 9, 22, and said, Almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no remission or forgiveness of sins. Somebody said, Now what about having your sins washed away, which is what baptism does. Let's look at the word washed away in Revelation 7, 14. I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. He said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white how? By the blood of the Lamb. By the blood of the Lamb, if there is any cleansing in washing, it has to be done in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. No cleansing in water whatsoever. Only symbolic in the Old Testament of washings. Revelations 1, 5 says unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Revelations 1, 5. 1 Peter 2.24 puts the capstone on all of this as he simply says, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness. In other words, it's all in Jesus. There's not one thing that we can do to get our sins forgiven or remitted other than go to Him and confess them and let Him bathe us in the preciousness of His divine blood. And then we are forgiven. Nothing else can help us in any way. You can be baptized in every baptistry tank there is. You can go down in every river there is. And it will mean very little to you as far as forgiveness of sins is concerned. I'm going to say this, I wholeheartedly believe that baptism is of a necessity. Amen. I want you to hear that. It is of a necessity. I further state that it is impossible for us to be in the bride of Christ without being baptized in Jesus' name. I want you to hold fast to that. Now then, somebody called my attention some time ago to a scripture in Acts. Acts 22 and 16. And it presents us a little problem if we're not careful. Because the Apostle Paul is relating his experience and making his defense before the multitudes. And he says this in the 16th verse, And now why tarriest thou? 
Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So we have confusion there, do we not? We have one scripture contradicting numerous other scriptures. So when one scripture seems to stand alone to contradict numerous other scriptures, then we have to search for a reason it's doing that. Because God never at any time has ever contradicted himself. And so what do you do? You search out. You try to find, and I'm going to say this, the King James Version or any other translated version is not without its errors and mistakes. None of them. Amen? None of them are without some error in there or mistakes. Somebody said, well, God's Word is infallible. God's Word is, but man's Word is not. Amen. We do basically the best we possibly can. And somebody told me one time, well, I'm standing on the King James Version. It's the only authorized version there is of the Bible. I said this Sunday night, I'm going to say it again. I reminded him that the King James Version was written by individuals without the Holy Ghost or translated by individuals without the Holy Ghost and translated by individuals that we now call Trinitarians. And you're going to find any number of little words that have been changed by them which would some way or somehow make this Bible that we're reading concur to Trinity. You'll find the word chi is a Greek word, and that can mean even, because, far, or as. And you'll find each time that they want to make God and the Holy Spirit and Jesus separate, they'll say and. When it could just as easy be even, which means he's all of those things. And that's just one little thing that happens time and time again. And not only that, that there is what they call in this Bible interpolations. Not interpretation, but interpolations. That simply means that individuals was translating this from ancient scrolls and the scribes sometimes wrote some of their thoughts by the side of the scrolls. And these some way or somehow got incorporated in the Holy Scriptures and Holy Writ. And when it's placed alongside the original, these things are glaring and they are not there. There's even some question. It's been proven that Matthew 28, 19 was inserted in there that it is an interpolation. There are some scriptures in 1 John that seems to prove the Trinity. That is an interpolation. Individuals look, put it on there, some of his thoughts on the subject, and it got incorporated in the scriptures. So if somebody said, well, what can we believe? Well, you can believe God. You can believe his truth. And if I might be bold enough to say this, you might try the Spirit and try believing that which God has placed before you to lead you into the path of all truth and righteousness. Individuals that's had some time that you haven't had, some access to sources that you haven't had, and try to listen to see what God has said to further strengthen us in our convictions as to who we are and what we are. And I'm going to say this again, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ it's the only thing that can wash away our sins. Amen. 
The songwriter said, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And we do that man called Jesus a grave injustice. When we belittle his suffering, and we belittle his torment, and we belittle all of those things he underwent, as that precious blood dripped from the vascular areas of his scalp, as that precious blood flowed from places where he was nails in his hand and in his feet, and that preciousness as his black back was lacerated to ribbons and in numerous places where that precious blood was bleaching, and finally so that he would give every ounce of blood that was in him for the redemption of humanity. They came and they saw that he wasn't dead yet. And they slipped the spear into the inner space of the fifth rib. And the Bible says, out of it came blood and water. In other words, the only part that was left where any blood could accumulate would be there. And so it would be sure that he would shed every ounce of blood he had for our redemption. They pierced him with a spear, and out it came. And he suffered that much to forgive us of our sins and wash us clean. And we do him a grave injustice when we put something else to that and take that away from him. We do him a great injustice. It's not right that we should do that. And God in his writings never intended for us to do that. I'm going back to that scripture again, lest I get away from it, Acts 22 and 16. So it stands against everything that we've just said. It would appear as if baptism does wash away sins. Correct rendition and translation of that simply says, and you can check it anytime you want to take the time, says, Arise and be baptized, testifying that your sins have been washed away when you called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Simply says that, and when it says that, it correlates with everything else that the Bible has ever said. And there is no disagreement. Whatsoever. There never has been. When God spoke, He didn't speak disagreement. God spoke truth. God spoke holiness and God spoke righteousness. And might I say this tonight, and I don't intend to uh, do away with everything maybe you've been taught, because I know how hard it is sometimes to lay down tradition, and sometimes we just want to build on a revelation. Notice that time Peter got a revelation and he wanted to build three tabernacles. He wanted to build a tabernacle on a revelation. And God never intended that we would learn something about His Word and He revealed something about that. He never intended for us to build a tabernacle on that. He meant us for us to hold that and search for more truth. Sometimes when we refuse what God is saying... We get down on other individuals like the Trinitarians that don't understand our doctrine and we get down on them because they won't leave their forms and formalities and we're camped right on ours and God help us don't, don't shake our little castle. Don't challenge us in any way whatsoever. Don't you think, friend, it's about time that God's people was to get up and get concerned about what God says about salvation, remission of sins, and power of the Holy Ghost, and what it's all about? Now, if baptism 
was necessary for the washing away or forgiveness of sins, then the Gentiles in chapter 10 must have received the Holy Ghost while they were yet in their sins. Because the Bible said while Peter was preaching, the Holy Ghost fell upon them. And then Peter says, can any man forbid water? In other words, if their sins had not yet took it baptism to wash away their sins, God filled them with the precious Holy Ghost, and they still had their sins there. And I might add this, not only them, but some of us also received the baptism of the Holy Ghost while our sins were still yet in our body. And you know that is not possible. I know that, and you know it. So the question is, Brother Hoskell, what are you trying to say? You just said that you really believe the baptism of the Holy Ghost is necessary, and baptism in Jesus' name is necessary to be a part of the body of Christ or part of the bride of Christ. And I do. So the question is, and some of you have heard that, and maybe we can go in a little more depth than that, and others have not, so to be fair with you, let us have some repetition. Exploring the name. Matthew 1.18, of course, you know what that is. talks about a, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. And when we study that name, translated throughout it, and why I don't know, I don't have the answer to that, translated throughout it is two Greek words that they have translated into the same thing. There is a word name there which simply comes from the Greek word krematizo, which simply means title, or called by that name. And then there is a name translated from the word onama, which simply means family name. And yet they're translated into the same thing. Now, God was titled or called a lot of things such as Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide, but that wasn't his family name. He was called Jehovah Rapha, which the Lord that healeth thee, but that wasn't his family name. He was called Jehovah Nisa, which the Lord our banner, but that wasn't his family name. All of these is crematizo, our title, he was called that. Jehovah Shalom, the God our peace, and the Lord our peace. Jehovah Ra'a, the Lord my shepherd. Jehovah Tiskanu, the Lord our righteousness. Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is present. And in all of these, all down through your Bible, these only described God or his attributes. In other words, what he was called, a title, which leveled in on what he was. But God has now, and God has always had only one name, Onama, family name. When you read Matthew 1, 21 and 25 again, it says, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, or thou shalt christen him, or call him by his family name Jesus. Now that was a very popular name in the Bible. Bible times come from the word Jehoshaphat, which simply means God with us helping us. <laughs> God with us, helping us. It was a very popular name, but it was derived from God, derived from His help. And although that was a popular name, this was the family name of God. You say, is there such thing? Well, Ephesians 3, 14, 15 
says, For this cause, Paul speaking, I bow my knee unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now there is a good case for you. Unto the Father, even our Lord Jesus Christ. That word is Kai. They have translated the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Could just as easily be translated uh, the, the Father, even our Lord Jesus Christ. Of whom the whole family in heaven, that's God's order, and earth is named. Hallelujah. The whole family of God is named after that name Jesus. Hallelujah. That name Jesus. It's more than just a name. It's God's name. And He's offered to share that with us tonight and said we could have that. Hallelujah. And friend, it means more than just a little something that causes your sins to be forgiven. It places you in the family of God with privileges of God unbeknownst to the majority of individuals. Friend, when you have submitted to that name and baptism, you've taken it on. And you have the privilege of sitting in heavenly places with God. And you're called by a family name. In other words, you belong to Him. Well, glory. Hallelujah. Thank God for the name. I said, thank God for the name. It means something. When Moses wanted to know what name had sent him or who had sent him, God gives him a title. He says, I am that I am. Or he says, Jehovah the Jehovah. And sometimes translated in the singular meaning, which I am the self-existent one. In other words, nobody had anything to do with creating me. And nobody can destroy me. I don't need anybody to exist. I've existed on my own. I don't need you to exist. The self-existent one. And sometimes the dual meaning, the self-existent one who reveals himself. So you see, it's always been God's plan to slowly reveal himself unto his people. To slowly unravel it. You say, why don't he do it all at once? Because we can't handle it all at once. We have problems handling a little tidbit of what he gives us. So he's just gracious with us. And he just asks you to keep an open mind. Just listen to my spirit. Because when the time comes, I'm going to lead you into something else until finally you know about me. Know about my fullness. Now... When God spake to Moses and said unto him, I am the Lord, he was simply saying, I am Jehovah, the self-existent one that reveals himself. And he said, And I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, unto Jacob by the name, that's crematizal, that's title, of God Almighty, or El Shaddai, or El Shaddai. But by my name, that's again crematizal, my title, Jehovah, the self-existent one who reveals himself, was I not known to them? Now what's he meaning by that? He's simply saying that he is giving to Israel the privilege of revealing his name fully. And to them is getting the responsibility of getting that revelation to the world. You notice? That it was Israel first of all. 
had he revealed his name to thou shalt call his name Jesus and he shall save his people from their sins they got the first revelation of that you see God has had a secret God has to keep secrets from it sometimes Genesis 32 29 Jacob asked and said when an angel which was listening you to hearing you call by titles you must have a name and I want to know it and God said wherefore is it that you'd ask after my name or, or my family name and it says and God blessed Jacob there he didn't tell him wasn't time yet and then in Judges 13 18 after the angel of the Lord had visited Mr. and Mrs. Manoah about the birth of their son Samson they asked his name that's Onama family name and he got this reply why askest thou after my name or my family name seeing it is a secret now that's in your Bible in other words it's a secret it's not ready to be revealed yet all you need to know is my attributes and my title I am reserving that for a great time I'm going to reveal that name when I robe myself in flesh and come down here and reveal myself to the world I want that name revealed when I'm here with humanity and not before the Bible says a virgin conceived brought forth a son and they called his name Jehoshua or his name Jesus hallelujah the family name and it was out the mystery is revealed the mystery is out family name of God is Jesus Romans 16 25 says now to him that is a power to establish you to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began on the very foundation of the world when God intended on creating mankind he meant for him at one time in history to know what his name was and friend, we're standing here with a privilege of having it revealed to us, and not only revealed to us, but we have it. Amen. Glory to God. Hallelujah. I said we have it. If we have taken that name in baptism. Hallelujah. That's well, glory. Hallelujah. I'm glad I was buried in his name. I wouldn't argue about it. I just know that was a family name. I took it on. And that gives me a privilege of being in the bride of Christ. That's going to mean more to you than you ever thought it would. You hold on to that. Paul, after preaching, Jesus said, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Even the hidden mystery which God ordained before the world in His glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. In other words, if they would have known who this was, if they had had any idea, it said, for had they known it, had that mystery some way and that revelation gotten to them they said they would not have crucified the Lord of glory because there would have been something about it they would know him so what's in the name necessary for salvation without it you go to hell we say well there again this cause for study and God help me if I, I get on you I don't really mean to 
But there's something about it that, that inside here is more than a privilege than we ever imagined. Just like the name of Jesus. It's more than just going underwater and coming up, having the name of Jesus called on it. It's more than that. It's greater than that. It supersedes every expectation to imagine a God in heaven would allow low humanity to take on His precious name and be called by that name. When it didn't used to be, they would even speak the name of Jehovah God for its sacredness. And we have it. Now, some of you have turned me off already, and some of you out there swimming around. You don't even know where I'm at. And others are struggling to do your best. But, friend, listen, it's too important to turn off. You hear what I've got to say because it means something to you. So, when we look at it, Peter 2.21 says, After Peter quotes Joel's prophecy concerning the outpouring of the Spirit, the great day of the Lord says, And it shall come to pass, that whosoever shall call on the name, or whosoever shall be called by the name, which is Onama, family name, shall be saved. Okay, that adds confusion. It simply does away with everything else that's ever been said. So what do we do? We find out again that the word saved, and why they do this I don't know, but I do know it is. All you've got to do is put a little study in it, and you can find out. The word saved again comes from two words. Number one is sozo, which means saved from wrath or saved from sin. And uh, number two is peripious, which simply means saved for a possession. In other words, one is saved from something, the other is saved for something. And so Peter is telling us here, that if we're called by the name of Jesus, we have a possession. We gain a possession. We've been saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ from our sins, but now we're saved for something. God has something miraculous in store for His people. And He has that saved for us, and He has us saved for it. Couple this with Peter's message to the Sanhedrin. And this is what he says when he talks to them. Neither is there salvation, neither do you become possessors. In other words, Peripheus, saved for something. In any other name, Onama, family name, under heaven given among men, whereby we must gain a possession. In other words, if we ever expect to be part of the bride of Christ and God has saved us far, it is necessary for us to be buried in the name of Jesus that we might know Him and take on His family name. Hallelujah. But that doesn't put everybody else in hell. Because you see, this hurts. Because I have to ask what happens to Grandpa who used to sit out on the porch after a hard day's work? A good old Baptist man who knew nothing about the Holy Ghost and knew nothing about baptism in Jesus' name and soak his feet in a dishpan that was hot and weary and sing songs of Zion until you could almost feel the presence of God shower down around you. And that man had something. Everybody that's been washed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ has something. He is repentant. 
as something that God has washed him by his blood for my sins. Don't put grandma and grandpa in hell. And don't do an injustice to individuals out here that's never known anything other than traditions passed down to them and they walk in all the light they know about. We've drove a lot of them out by insisting they never had anything to begin with. Yes, we have. We've done them and God a grave injustice. Instead of realizing that we have something more something more and they can have it too yeah. how do we receive the family name this is where baptism comes in I have already given that away but Galatians 3 26 and 27 says you are the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ for as many of you have been baptized under Christ have put on Christ or have taken his name. Peter preaching, when he stood up on the day of Pentecost, was preaching to Israel. Israel had forfeited. Israel had forfeited anything that they had ever had. They had refused and rejected God veiled in flesh. And refusing him, they had rejected him. In other words, they had, when you reject a man, you reject his name. And they had rejected him. And Peter preached the message and said, You with wicked hands took him and slew him. And it got to them. And they said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Now we had to be saved. But they didn't say that. They said, men and brethren, what shall we do? In other words, how can we possibly get back into the family of God again, which we have alienated ourselves from? How are we going to do it? We were one time under the covenant of circumcision, and we refused that very one that came to fulfill this. And in refusing him, we refused his name. Now what can we do? Because there was something went with that name. Israel was mindful of the blessings that came under the name of God. And Peter says, you've got to repent first off. And then you've got to be baptized, every one of you, in the name Onama, family name of Jesus, because of. Not far, not to allow the water to wash them away, but because of the remission of your sins. In other words, when you do this, it's a sign that you have again taken on the name of Jesus Christ, the family name, and you have it again. You're restored into the family of God. And there comes the restoration of it all. Those that have denied Him again accepted Him and repented of their evil deed and were buried in the name of Jesus. And when they raised up out of that water, they had the name again on them, the family name of God. Amen. Well, glory. I said, well, glory. Thank God for it. Amen. We refused, they said. 
We have forfeited. In the old days, when accepting or taking on the family name, a child was christened, that was christened was not sprinkled. Christening was something that they did back then. But they put this child under the water. As they dipped that child under the water, they called the family name over him. Not his given name, but the family name over him. And until that time, whether the child be a few days or a few years old, there was no difference. They were no different from the household servants. They was enjoying the privilege of the household, but not inheritors of the promise because that come through his name. Now we've taken on the name of Jesus. But there's a little warning here, and I want you to hear it. Now this is going to take some time, so relax, will you, and help me? Because we've taken the family name, there's still no sure guarantee of being in the bride when Jesus comes. Because with that name comes a responsibility. I had a plaque one time telling me what an honorable name the name of Hoskla was and what I should do to keep that name without reproach. We have taken on the name of Jesus in baptism and that's a family name and it becomes important to Him as well as to us how we keep that name without reproach. Now we've used the prodigal son for a lot of things. But He speaks loud and clear to us especially we that have taken on the name of Jesus through baptism. When this young man came and asked for his inheritance, he wanted to get out from under the Father's roof and out from under the Father's name. He didn't want the responsibility that came with the Father's name. And in old Eastern custom, it still stands true that when a son gets tired of being under his Father's roof and asks for his inheritance, he renounces the family name and he walks outside the umbrella of his family and once he leaves, what inheritance the Father gives him is all that he has a right to. Now the Baptists stand on something. I've used this several times on them. They can't deny it. They say, once a son, always a son. So it doesn't really matter what you do or however you do it. If you're once a son, always a son. But we're looking at a Bible that's been written according to Eastern customs and not according to Western customs, and that is simply not so. Because when that son decides that he no longer needs his father and no longer needs his name, he walks out from under the umbrella of the father's roof. He is no more a son. And when we do that, saint of God, and decide that we can just treat this name carelessly, we can just live however we want to and treat it unjustly, we're walking out from under the Father's house and we're actually renouncing a name above every name that's been given to us. 
And if it hadn't been for the Father's mercy, even when he come back to the Father's house, he would have had to come back as a servant. He had no right to the family name again. It was only the Father's mercy. And he knew that. Because he said, my father's servants in his house is better off than I am. And I'm going to go and ask and say, I'm no longer your son. Just let me be a servant. And his father looked at him with those repentant rags on him. And he said, I'm not going to allow this. It was only the father's mercy had allowed him sonship again. And we ought to be glad for the mercy of God tonight because a lot of us have walked out from under the Father's house and we've squandered the inheritance of God has given us and we've come creeping back and it's only God's mercy that allows us to be called by the family name one more time and become a son of God again. But He don't have to do this. The son knew that. Even after he repented, he didn't have to do this. So that leaves us here that really when we do this, we're just on the mercy of God. And He don't have to. Hey, oh, He's not, he not going to send us to hell. And we're going to get to that in a minute because in the kingdom of God, our servants, our friends, and our guests, That's the reason we're privileged. I can find those notes again. I'd like to go back to them. But Jesus speaking to us lets us know right away who we are and what we are and what we're supposed to be doing. Now there's guests and there's servants in the house of God. I want you to notice this. When the ten virgins went to meet the bridegroom and went with him while they all slumbered and slept waiting for the bridegroom to come, none of those were the bride. None of them. You can't make them fit in that. I've tried. You can't do it. Because actually, again, with customs the way the Bible was written, the bridegroom comes to the house of the bride to get her and escort her to his house. And the bride was still in her parents' house. The Bible says... There's a great cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go you out to meet him. They met him, and the bridegroom was on his way to the bride's house. All of those that had oil in their lamp was allowed to go and become part of the wedding ceremony. And you also find on more occasions than one in the Bible, talks about an individual that comes to the wedding supper. And he comes in without a wedding garment. Now you've got to remember that the bride and groom is already there. 
And this individual comes to the wedding supper and they said, how come you in here without a wedding garment? A lot of them came invited guests, friends and loved ones. Now then, I'm going to throw something out here and just leave it with you. Not all, and we said it before, not all the body is the bride. That's why you've got more of a privilege tonight than you ever dreamed you had. From the body of the first man, Adam, came his wife. Also from the body of the last man, Adam, which is Jesus, will come his wife. The Bible tells us, 1 Corinthians 12, 27, Now ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular. In other words, from God's body, or from His church, comes His bride. Hallelujah. I've taken His name. I'm a spouse to Him. And if you haven't been, you need to be. Because, friend, I know that there's going to be a lot of people there. But I don't want to be a friend. I don't want to be a guest. I don't want to be a servant. I want to be the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ with everything I can have. I want it. There's a song that says, Give me a cabin in a corner of glory land. I don't want it. I want everything God has got for me. Amen. That's why I feel such a privilege having been buried in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. I know what I belong and I want to stay under that. And it's a privilege to me. I don't know about you, but it is to me. Keep those things, study them, don't reject them. Like I said, do you have any questions? You see me personally, we'll talk about it. I should quit now, but I want to get all this over with. All right? Ideas and opinions may be different from yours, but not interested in ideas and opinions. We've lived under that cloud too long. Interested in what God's Word says. So I'm going to enter in to another area where angels fear to trod. I want you to know I love you. I don't unchristianize you in any way, but I want to show you something, and I want to show you how I feel and why I feel that way. You need to turn to a very controversial chapter in 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter. First off, the Apostle Paul begins that by saying, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. You see, the Apostle Paul didn't stutter when he asked people to follow him. And it irritates me sometimes when we get up and be little leadership as if they don't mean anything as if some way or somehow God just decided he wanted somebody up here to act a fool you to lay your blame on but the apostle Paul didn't stutter and I don't either because I ask you to follow me as I follow Christ and if you find me erroneous in any scripture we need to talk about it that's fair enough, isn't it? Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances I have, as I have delivered them to you. 
But it would have you to know that the head of every man is Christ. Now I want you to know he's setting a stage here for something. I want you to listen to that. Have you to know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. Every woman prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered, dishonoreth her head. For that is even all one she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought to cover his head, ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither is the woman without the man of the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. Judge in yourself, is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Doth not even nature itself teach you that if any man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. A whole lot of this could be did away with immediately if we could just understand what the Apostle Paul is saying right there at the end of the Scripture. When he says, But if any man be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. Now, the Apostle Paul always did his best to put down any contention at all. And so did the other Apostles. In Acts the 15th chapter, the first verse, and you just write it down, when there was contention over circumcision, when they wanted to circumcise the Gentiles, they had to bring this about. Finally, they decided on not insisting that the Gentiles be circumcised. Now, he dealt with that before, and let on as far as circumcised foreskin is concerned, it didn't mean anything, but if the Jews felt that way in their customs, then for them to do it, but don't insist on the Gentiles doing it. Now, what we have to ascertain, first of all, is, is the subject being contentious. Individuals say uh, that the churches of God don't have any such thing as being contentious. But we have to ask ourselves, is the question uh, brought up, is the, que- is the subject being contentious, or is the subject having a covering? And, of course, you will find out that the subject is having a covering. Uh, Let's go over some of this again. Every man that prayeth or prophesieth, having his head, that's this up here, covered, dishonoreth his head, which is Christ. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head, that's this up here, unveiled or or uncovered, dishonoreth her head, which is her husband. For that is even as she were shorn or shaven. Now, it tells you in the third verse how to identify these things. So all you got to do is read it. And then it says, But if a woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But it is shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven. Let her be covered. And this was a sign of a harlot. Now, you have to also ascertain in this why did the woman, why is she supposed to have long hair? And, of course, all down through that, it says it's for a covering or it's for a veil. 
And it says having his head covered, it's dishonoring his head, which is God. And if she doesn't have hers covered, her head covered. Now, next thing we got to find out here is what is the head? And of course, there again, the head was always considered from the top right up here to the bottom here. That's the head. Okay? So that simply means that if a man appears with his hair down to here, covering his whole head, he's dishonoring God. But if a woman appears in public like that, she is dishonoring her husband. Stay with me. And then the tenth verse says, For this reason are cause ought a woman to have power on her head. Now, translated, that is authority on her head, or this is a sign of her husband's authority over her. And there again, to make any sense out of this whatsoever, you've got to realize that the Apostle Paul was talking to the Corinthians that this was a custom in Corinth that a woman should not appear in public anywhere without being veiled. And many of them could not afford a veil, and so their hair was their veil. When they stepped outside, their hair was supposed to be long enough to cover their whole head, their whole face. And it was not that custom that man should. And he is expounding that. Now then, notice here, for this cause, in other words, uh, a woman ought to have the sign of authority on her head of the husband's authority on her head. Now then, I want to show you something. You'll stay with me. In 1 Corinthians, you turn there. 14th chapter and the 34th verse. It says, let the women keep silence. Now that word means mute. I mean, they're not supposed to utter one sound in the Corinthian church. Not one peep are they supposed to utter. And it says, let your women keep silence in the church for it is not forbid, for permitted in them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience. And that same word obedience is the same word of authority. In other words, them being silent or mute in the church signified in that church that they were under obedience to their husband. Which means that the women in the Corinthian church couldn't make a sound. And if they did, they was telling the whole world that they was not under submission or subjection to their husbands. Now I submit to you tonight that if they are, if they are, we are commanded now today, women are, to have their head covered, then you cannot now today make one sound in church. 
and correlate the scriptures. So we're going to have to decide whether this is a Corinthian custom or whether Now it goes on down here to say, but does not nature itself teach you that it is, if a man have long hair, it is a shame to him. If a woman have long hair, it's a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering or a veil. Now it might surprise you to know that nature teaches you only what the environment and tradition you was raised in teaches you. That's all nature will teach you. All you've got to do is go to the foreign countries and watch them. What nature teaches them. Nature teaches them that it's all right to have four or five wives. Nature teaches them that incest is all right. I don't know who would want that many, but that's what it teaches them. Nature teaches them a whole lot of things because that's the environment they were raised in. So what he's actually saying here is your traditions, nature itself, your culture teaches you at that instance where you're living at. It teaches you that it's a shame for a woman, a man to have long hair. In other words, it's a shame for a man to appear in public veiled having his whole head covered. That's a shame for him because he's dishonoring his head, which is God. But in that culture, it was a shame for a woman to appear in public, in church, doing anything without her head veiled. This is her head here veiled. Tradition teaches you that. We need to leave the Scriptures where they're at. And like I said, all you've got to do, I, I just want that one question answered. That's all. Because we, we, we want to correlate here. If we're going to put women under subjection, they're all going to have to have long hair. That means they can't make one sound. You can't sneeze. You can't even utter amen. Of course, some of you don't anyway, but you can't do that. So we're going to have to decide whether we want to, to, the culture and tradition of, of the Corinthian church and whether that's sparse or not. Heresy, you say, listen, look at your Bible. It's saying it in there. You haven't even looked at it. Some of you are getting a little bit riled, but I'm still on holy ground. I'm still where I belong. I'm still in the Bible. And if you want long hair, God bless you. You keep it. I've got nothing wrong with that. Actually, I prefer long hair. But you leave other people alone that don't want to live under that culture. God has always wanted a distinction made between man and woman. He always has. And He still does. He don't want a man with hair as long as a woman, and He don't want a woman with hair as short as a man. He wants a distinction made. Well, I just, well, go ahead while I'm half hung anyway. We reach back here in Deuteronomy 22 and 5. 
And we say, The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth to a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. All that do so are abomination unto the Lord thy God. We bring all of that up to our day, pick it up, write that one itself, and we pick it up, we place it right here, and we mean for that scripture to stand by itself. And the Bible tells us that no scripture prophecies of any private interpretation. In other words, it's not going to stand by itself. I'm going to state again my preference. But my preference doesn't mean anything. God has always despised homosexuality, lesbianism in any form. And he's always went out of his way to let that be known, and he's always tried to put a difference between the man and the woman. And there again, if you look, and I advise you to do it, there again, if you will look, and there are books you can find to find this out. All you've got to do is look and you'll find out that the apparel of man, outward apparel of man and woman in that day was no different. The only difference was their underclothing, what tunics or underclothing. That was the only difference. And that's still a shame to God. And you want you to notice here what it says. It's not just for the woman. It talks about a man, a man not supposed to put on a woman's undergarments, and a man, a woman's not supposed to dress like a man. And a man is not supposed to dress like a woman. So actually that means that you can't wear slacks. Doesn't mean it at all. It's simply trying to do away with individuals that might be some way bordering on homosexuality or or lesbianism. All the Bible says is modest apparel. I spent quite a bit of time in school of criminology when I was a security officer at Bowen Center. Statistics let us know that all the assaults and all the rapes happened because a certain portions of a female body was exposed. And it named which ones it was. For a person maybe even slightly unbalanced, or for a person that uh, somewhere, somehow was in problems, let's put it that way. Low neckline, which would be a turn on or a come on to individuals. No sleeve dresses or blouses, which exposed portions of the female anatomy. You say, the Bible didn't say it. I'm just telling you what these people said whenever they arrested people and asked them, and it's on record, what made you do this? Dresses that were worn halfway between thighs and knees in the days of miniskirts, more rapes than any other time. They want to bring them back. Shorts of any kind. Clothing worn tight, shorts, jeans, slacks, or dresses, indicated to come on to these individuals. 
And God's order when he told individuals to dress modestly was to protect the victim as well as the attacker. You see how good God is? What he wants to do about us, how he wants to protect us. All at the same time we're not careful. Mothers dressing their little darlings in come on clothes. Causing individuals to sin, if not outwardly, in their heart. I had to meet this challenge in the church at Rosie Clare when I talked to a young man. We had several young people filled with the Spirit of God. Times when many skirts was in, it was hard to find a long dress. We had a revival going on and young people was coming in. Found about four young boys. They came... All at once they didn't come anymore. And I asked him, I said, how come you're not coming to church? He said, well, where the host of the Bible tells us not to sin. He said, when we come, we have to either look up the ceiling or pretend we're blind to keep from sinning. And you talk about making mamas mad. But I insisted that they dress their little darlings and they themselves dress decent. They got mad. Some of them left. But it doesn't make any difference what happens. God's word is God's word. That's what the Bible tells us, to have modest dress. Let me tell you this. You can shoot me after this if you want to. I feel like I'm ready to go to heaven anyway. But I would a whole lot rather see a woman sometimes dressed in nice, modest slacks. They're more modest than they are trying to do some work dressed in a dress. On more occasions than one, my aunt, God bless her, brought up the old-fashioned way why she wouldn't put on a pair of slacks, but she would put on her dress and her husband's overalls and put a dress on under it, or over it. Explain that to me. I don't understand it. And I've seen her more times than one with a dress on, out working on a farm, exposing herself, and you'd have to turn around. I've almost walked into the house a lot of time trying to keep. Wouldn't she have been more modest? Wouldn't she have been more covered? You know she would. She wouldn't have had on man's clothing One more. I'm getting it all over with. Brother Hosclaw, how come you don't ever have communion? Friend, there's more dangers in this than you know. For one thing, we should never, and I want you to hear this, we should never have communion outside of with the body of Christ and the church of God. God has to be merciful to us if he lets, it, if he lets us get by with it. Because it was given for the church in the church. 
There are several reasons, but number one reason is found in the 11th chapter. There again, you see, Paul is dealing with controversial issues. Curious questions are answered. But he addresses this issue first of all. Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not that you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together in the church, he's addressing communion, he'll explain that on down. I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. In other words, as far as I am concerned, as long as there is divisions in the church, in the body of Christ, and those divisions are not rectified and done away with, we stand in danger. when we take communion. Because that's the first thing he says. I hear that there's divisions among you. goes on down when you come together, therefore in one place, you're not coming to eat the Lord's Supper. In other words, you can't do this because he is not the author of divisions. And when we come together to take communion, there ought to be the most perfect holy union and unity you ever saw. Otherwise in that, it's dangerous. He goes on to explain, now a lot of people take this, you shouldn't eat in church, and that's fine, you have that belief if you want to have it. Well, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about taking communion, and then people come and they separate themselves, and one will eat, another and doesn't have anything to eat. It explains it there. All you got to do is read it. And then he says, For I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread... And when he was given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of you. Now I've got to ask you a question. How are you going to do anything in remembrance of Jesus Christ when you're completely alienated yourself from his command, which is for us to have no divisions in the body? After the same matter also took he the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily or in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there again we go all right back to the divisions that's there. And when we do this and there's divisions and disunity and malice and envy and strife in the body of Christ, we're drinking this cup in an unworthy manner. And he says, when you do this, you're guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've said it not, everything he's all about. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup close scrutiny and examination. And he that eateth and drinketh unworthily or in an unworthy manner eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. 
And then he says something that I have to believe. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Why would that be in there if he wasn't warning us of the importance of the unity of the body of Christ and there be no divisions? Why would he tell us if we did this the wrong way and that for that reason many Christians are sick and they're weak and many of them are even asleep? Be careful. As churches take communion every Sunday, they're not particular who they give it to. Never any advice whatsoever goes with it. Don't no more know what they're doing than anything. And others take it ever so often and still don't understand what we're doing. I've got to call your attention in closing to the first thing he said. I hear there be divisions among you. And then he comes with the schooling on the order and meaning of the Lord's table. And then he goes on to say, For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened to the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. Perfect unity it has to be. And if a man hunger, let him eat at home. If you come to fake your fill in communion, <laughs> that's the wrong thing. You see, they got communion and they intertwined this with what they called their love feast. They completely done away with the significance of the Lord's body. And he said, now I'm going to set the rest in order when I come. So there were still some other things that he was going to set in order, and he did. I'm done.